Hello and Happy New Year. It's the first Thursday of 2024. It's January the 4th, and I am reading the Cape Cod Times. We start with the weather. Today, a rain or snow shower and becoming windier is expected, high of 39. Tonight, a low of 21, mainly clear. Friday, a high of 35, low of 24, plenty of sun. Saturday, high of 39, low of 33, intervals of clouds and sun. Sunday, high of 37, low of 27, breezy with occasional wet snow. Monday, a high of of 38, Low of 28, sunshine and patchy clouds are expected. And for our daylight report, the sun rose at 7.08 this morning and will set at 4.24, giving us 9 hours and 16 minutes of daylight. And we move to the lottery. For the numbers game, drawn yesterday, the midday drawing, the number was 4070. Midday, Wednesday, January the 3rd, 4070. And the evening drawing, 7584. Again, numbers game, evening drawing, Wednesday, January 3rd, 7584. For Mass Cash, the number is. 3, 8, 21, 28, and 30. Again, for Mass Cash, drawn yesterday, January the 3rd, the numbers are 3, 8, 21, 28, and 30. For Powerball, drawn yesterday, January the 3rd, the numbers are 30, 31, 38, 48, 68, with the Powerball of 8. Again, for Powerball, 30, 31, 38, 48, 68, and the Powerball of 8. For Lucky for Life, the numbers are 3, 17, 21, 25, 43, and the Lucky Ball is 12. Again, Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday. January the 3rd, the numbers are 3, 17, 21, 25, 43, and the lucky ball is 12. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 3, 18, 27, 29, 64, and the mega ball is 1. Again, for Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 3, 18, 27, 29, 64, and the Mega Ball is 1. For Mega Bucks, drawn on Wednesday, January the 3rd, the numbers are 7, 16, 18, 27, 34, 43. Again, for Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, Wednesday the 3rd, the numbers are 7, 16, 18, 27, 34, and 43. And now on to the news for Thursday, January the 4th, 2024. The front page of the Cape Cod Times wanted snowplow drivers on the Cape. Shortage hitting almost every town. And this is reported by Denise Coffey from Yarmouth. How much snow will Cape Cod see this winter? The Farmer's Almanac predicts more than last year. Maybe. But the real question is, who's going to plow it? Falmouth Deputy Director of Public Works Stephen Cataret said the town has socked away about $375,000 in its snow and ice budget. But money's not the issue. Only half of the town's 53 plow routes have been assigned. He chalks that up. He chalks up that shortage of drivers to last year's light snowfall, coupled with the cost of maintaining vehicles. Quote, almost every town is in the same position, he said. 
For those so inclined and with the proper vehicle size and equipment, snowplow drivers can earn from around $100 an hour to $160 an hour. Falmouth pays $200 an hour for front-end loaders when snowfall totals require moving snow. Sandwich offers $160 an hour for front-end loaders. Most towns guarantee contractors a minimum of four hours when they're called in to plow. Contractors are assigned routes based on the size of the vehicle, plow, and number of wheels, Cataract said. Subdivision routes are smaller, so smaller vehicles can handle the load. Main and heavily traveled roads need bigger vehicles and wider plows. Drivers are sent out with laminated route maps, and when they're finished with one route, they're given another. The search for drivers is universal. Quote, all of our towns have to think about the same thing, said Roby Whitehouse, assistant director of the Yarmouth Department of Public Works. Quote, we all want to get out quickly. Close quote. Yarmouth has about 243 miles of road and 35 miles of sidewalks. The highway division takes the lead on clearing snow, with other town departments pitching in. Private contractors have signed up to clear 31 of 36 neighborhood snowplow routes to date, White House said. One of those is Michael Tomlinson with MBT Construction in Yarmouth. This year, he will have drivers in three pickup trucks with nine-foot plows taking care of four routes. Hourly rates depend on the type of equipment, plow size, and items like spreaders or wing plows. Tomlinson has plowed for the town for about 20 years, he said. The job is not for the faint of heart. Quote, you can't just stick someone out in a truck in the middle of a snowstorm or blizzard because most people have no idea what it's like to drive around in that for 10, 12, 15, or 20 hours, he said. Yarmouth's snow and ice budget hasn't changed in years, according to White House. It's one of the few budgets the state allows to run in the red, she added. It takes time and money to make money plowing. Contractors must submit applications and have their vehicles and equipment inspected and functioning. They must have insurance. Tomlinson estimates he spent between $3,000 and $5,000 to prepare the vehicles. You can't have guys out there in unreliable vehicles, he said. Quote, you've got to make sure your hoses, belts, fluids, brakes, tires are good, that your vehicles are maintained. Tomlinson will get called when the snow adds to th- adds up to three or four inches. He'll open up every street and come back to widen the roads and clean the gutters, the sides of the roads, as often as needed, he said. Quote, you might go through your route eight to ten times, he said. And it's a thankless job sometimes. It's hard to keep everyone happy, he said. He's been chased by a woman wielding a broom. He's been chastised for plowing more snow on one side of the street than the other. People have complained that he's pushed snow too far into a driveway. Quote, you might push three or four feet of snow into the driveways at the end of the storm, he said. That's the big mound that everybody hates, but we have to get it out of the road. We have to put it somewhere, close quote. The next article from the front page of Cape Cod Times is entitled Vineyard Wind Sends First Power into the Grid. This is reported by Heather McCarran. Two days into the new year, the ISO New England Electric Transmission Grid for the first time surged with power churned by the winds blowing over the outer continental shelf south of Martha's Vineyard. Just before noon on Tuesday, one turbine in the Vineyard Wind lease area successfully delivered about 5 megawatts of power to the mainland via cables under Colville Beach in Centerville. The switch was flipped at 11.52 p.m. as part of the initial commissioning process 
for the project, a joint venture of Avangrid and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners that's been touted as the nation's first commercial-scale offshore wind farm. Cape Cod legislators are applauding the landmark moment. Quote, this milestone is a testament to the achievements we can reach through collaboration, persistence, and a dedication to a green future, said Senator, State Senator Julian Sear, Democrat from Truro, in a statement released Wednesday. Quote, Cape Codders and Islanders are proud to pave the way for continued advancement of clean energy future in Massachusetts, powered by offshore wind, one that's critical to saving our planet and coastal communities. Noting Cape Cod's extreme vulnerability to climate change and sea level rise, State Representative Sarah Peak, Democrat from Provincetown, said, quote, it is fitting that our region will lead the nation in the development of offshore wind to green our electric grid. Grid, close quote. The sentiment was shared by House colleague State Representative Dylan Fernandez, Democrat from Falmouth, who called the delivery of the first power, quote, a pivotal moment in our fight against climate change, close quote. And a new quote continues as clean, renewable wind power flows to Massachusetts homes for the first time, we are making tangible progress toward our climate goals while also putting hundreds of local community members to work, he said in the statement. Additional testing will take place on and offshore in coming weeks, Vineyard Wind said. The company expects to have five turbines, including the turbine that delivered first power, working at full capacity early this year. No definitive date was given, but until then, initial operations will gradually ramp up with power delivered intermittently as testing and commissioning progresses. There are another 57 turbines to construct in the shallow waters south of Martha's Vineyard to complete the 806-megawatt vineyard wind farm. It is not known when the project will become fully operational, although early Earlier projections put completion within this year. Several critical tests and technical milestones, including final testing of the export cables and energization of the offshore substation, preceded Tuesday's power delivery. The event was initially expected to occur last week, before the turning of the year. Finished in July, the offshore substation, quote, is one of the largest built into the global offshore industry, close quote, according to the company. Vineyard Winds General Electric Halide X turbines are also monumental. Each includes a monopile anchoring, a monopile anchoring it to the seafloor, a traditional transitional piece at the surface then a tower topped by a nacelle and three blades. The blades are 107 meters long, or almost the length of a football field, including the end zones, which is 109.7 meters. The height of each turbine is about the same as three Statue of Liberties stacked up, about 850 feet, from blade tip to the water's surface. According to the U.S. Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, this scale is typical for offshore wind turbines. The greater heights and longer blades allow each turbine to create more energy efficiently. Therefore, fewer turbines are needed to produce the same power that shorter turbines with shorter blades would generate. In a statement on Wednesday, Governor Maura Healey said Vineyard Wind's initial power burst is, quote, a historic moment for the American offshore wind industry. As we look ahead, Massachusetts is on a path towards energy independence, thanks to our nation-leading work to stand up the offshore wind industry, she said. Tim Evans, a partner at Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, Credits, quote, local partners, lo labor leaders, and the project's skilled union workforce and local communities from New Bedford to Barnstable for making Vineyard Wind's effort possible. 
quote, by delivering first power, we have broken new ground and shown a viable path forward with power that is renewable, locally produced, and affordable, he said. Avangrid CEO Pedro Azagra agreed, noting in a statement, quote, as we build on this tremendous progress and work to deliver the full capacity of this historic project, we continue to stand proudly with all the partners that made this achievement possible, including, including the Biden administration and the Healy-Driscoll administration, close quote. Sierra Club Massachusetts, the grassroots environmental organization, estimates the project will contribute $3.7 billion in energy-related cost savings once it's fully operational and will, quote, boost local energy reliability, helping ensure fewer blackouts and power outages in the region, said in a statement. Quote, Vineyard Wind will aid tremendously in reducing dangerous fossil fuel air pollution that threatens the health of our most vulnerable communities, close quote, said Sierra Club Massachusetts Acting Director Vic Mahanka. To begin, Vineyard Wind will contribute about 65 megawatts to the power grid. This will gradually increase in bundles as more turbines are completed and put into operation until the full 806 megawatt capacity is reached. Once it's complete, the project will produce enough power to energize 400,000 homes and businesses in Massachusetts and is expected to reduce carbon emissions by more than 1.6 million metric tons per year equivalent to taking 325,000 cars off the road annually, according to the company. And more from the front page of the Cape Cod Times, national debt hits a record $34 trillion, reported by Fatima Hussein and Josh, Josh Boak. From Washington, <clears throat> The federal government's gross national debt has surpassed $34 trillion, a record high that foreshadows the coming political and economical challenges to improve America's balance sheet in the coming year. U.S. Treasury Department issued a report Tuesday logging U.S. finances, which have become a source of tension in a politically divided Washington that could possibly see parts of the government shut down without an annual budget in place. Republican lawmakers and the White House agreed last June to temporarily lift the nation's de debt limit, staving off the risk of what would be a historic default. That agreement lasts until 2025. The national debt e eclipsed $34 trillion several years sooner than pre-pandemic uh, projections. The Congressional Budget Office's January 2020 projections had gross federal debt eclipsing $34 trillion in fiscal year 2029. But the debt grew faster than expected because of a multi-year pandemic starting in 2020 that shut down most of the U.S. economy. The government borrowed heavily, heavily under then-President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden to stabilize the economy and support a recovery. But the rebound came with a surge of inflation that pushed up interest rates and made it more expensive for the government to service its debts. Quote, so far, Washington has been spending money as if we had unlimited resources, close quote, said Sung Wan Son, an economics professor at Loyola Marymount University. Quote, but the bottom line is there is no free lunch, he said, and I think the outlook is pretty grim, close quote. The gross debt includes money that the government owes itself, so most policymakers rely on the total debt held by the public in assessing the government's finances. This lower figure, $26.9 trillion, is roughly equal in size to the U.S. gross domestic product. Last June, the Congressional Budget Office estimated in its 30-year outlook that publicly held debt will be equal to a record 181% of American economic activity by 2053. The national debt does not appear to be a weight on the U.S. economy right now. 
as investors are willing to lend the federal government money. This lending allows the government to keep spending on programs without having to raise taxes. But the debt's path in the decades to come, in the decades to come, might put at risk national security and major programs, including Social Security and Medicare, which have become the most prominent drivers of forecasted government spending over the next few decades. Government dysfunction, such as another debt limit showdown, could also be a financial risk if investors worry about the lawmakers' willingness to repay the U.S. debt. A Peterson Foundation analysis states that the foreign holdings of U.S. debt peaked at 49% in 2011, but dropped to 30% by the end of 2022. Quote, looking ahead, debt will continue to skyrocket as the Treasury expects to borrow nearly $1 trillion more by the end of March, said Peterson Foundation CEO Michael Peterson. Continuing the quote, adding trillion after trillion in debt year after year should be a flashing red warning sign to any policymaker who cares about the future of our country, close quote. The debt equals to about $100,000 per person in the U.S. That sounds like a lot, but the sum so far has not appeared to threaten U.S. economic growth. Both Democrats and Republicans have called for debt reduction, but they disagree on the appropriate means of doing so. The Biden administration has been pushing for tax hikes on the wealthy and corporations to reduce budget deficits, in addition to funding its domestic agenda. Biden also increased the budget for the IRS so that it could collect unpaid taxes and possibly reduce the debt by hundreds of billions of dollars over 10 years. Republican lawmakers have called for large cuts to non-defense government programs and the repeal of clean energy tax credits and spending passed in the Inflation Reduction Act. But Republicans also want to trim Biden's IRS funding and cut taxes further, both of which could cause the debt to worsen. Both claims are previews of cases that will likely be put to voters in this year's presidential election. White House spokesman Michael Kikua put the blame on the GOP, saying in a statement that the steady accrual over years was, quote, trickle-down debt, driven overwhelmingly by repeated Republican giveaways skewed to big corporations and the wealthy. By contrast, the national the Republican lawmakers have said that borrowing during the Biden administration contributed to the 2022 spike in inflation rates that dragged down the Democratic president's approval ratings. The national debt does not appear to be a weight on the U.S. economy right now, as investors are willing to lend the federal government money. This lending allows the government to keep spending on programs without having to raise taxes. And finally, from the front page of the Cape Cod Times, State Waitlist for Migrant Shelter Grows, reported by Sam Drysdale of the State House News Service. Despite top officials' claims in the fall that the number of migrant families coming into Massachusetts was decreasing, Thousands of families continue to apply for placement in the state's emergency shelter system. Since November 10th, 1,393 families have applied to live in emergency assistance housing, according to a new report from the Healy administration. The number of homeless families in need of shelter has exploded in the past year, largely driven by an influx of immigrants coming into the country legally, but unable to work under federal immigration laws. With the state on the cusp of its coldest months of the year, Emergency Assistance Director Scott Rice said November 30th that, quote, the trends are going down for families coming to the Bay State. Sometime in October, the numbers of people coming into the state started to go down. After that, we put a cap in place. After that, the weather got cold, he said. So I don't know the relationship between them all yet. I need more time to actually really answer that question. 
The number of applicants into emergency shelter began steadily rising in late 2022 and picked up speed last spring and summer. A breakdown of how many of the 1,393 families that have applied to live temporarily in the EA system have been accepted into shelter, placed on a wait list, or deemed ineligible and turned away altogether. That breakdown was not available Tuesday afternoon, an executive office of of Housing and Livable Communities spokesperson said. Despite a state right-to-shelter law, Governor Maura Healey unilaterally capped the shelter system at 7,500 families in the fall. That wait list has also been rising, jumping from 242 on December the 12th until reaching 391 by December the 28th. The new report from the Healy administration offers details on what happens to families that are eligible for emergency shelter but placed on the waiting list and deprioritized amidst a shortage of units in which to place families. Quote, families on our wait list are provided assistance with transportation to locations within Massachusetts of their choosing and information on additional state resources and assistance in finding housing, quote, close quote, the report said. Quote, for example, EOHLC administers the Home Base Program, which can provide eligible homeless families with help paying first and last month's rent and security deposits moving expenses, stipends to help with ongoing housing costs, and other costs that can help families stabilize an existing housing situation or stably rehouse. The Housing Secretariat also partners with the Department of Transitional Assistance and MassHealth to connect families with available benefits, it said. Quote, lastly, when space is available, Families on the wait list are offered overnight shelter at state-run overflow sites in Quincy, Revere, and Cambridge, as well as through sites administered via our partnership with the United Way, close quote, the report said. The report, released Tuesday, is the second in a series of newly required reporting on the EA system, which lawmakers mandated of Healy as a condition of directing more money to the shelters in December. Lawmakers steered $250 million more into the shelter system this winter, and the mid-December report suggested that more than $350 million in additional funds may need to be authorized to keep the system funded through June and to, quote, avoid imminent run-out dates for key programs, close quote. In what has quickly become a more and more expensive line item, the latest report also shows that the state has spent an additional $42 million on the shelter system in just the two weeks since mid-December. The mid-December report said $205 million had been spent on emergency assistance housing in fiscal year 2024. Tuesday's report reveals $247 million has been spent on the program this fiscal year. These numbers only reflect costs through November, as November and December invoices are currently being received and processed, the report says. The legislature and Healy in July appropriated just $325 million for emergency shelters in the fiscal 2024 budget, meaning costs are quickly approaching the initial appropriation amount about halfway through the fiscal year. Spending includes the costs of shelter and associated services, National Guard activation, clinical and safety risk assessment sites, temporary emergency shelters, and family welcome centers. Healy has repeatedly said her administration is focused on getting work authorizations to help migrants who are eager to earn the money needed to leave the state shelter system and support their families financially. According to the new report, the number of people living in shelters who can legally work in the U.S. has more than tripled. As of December 12th, 813 migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers 
in the EA system were authorized to work in the U.S. By December the 28th, that number had grown to 2,713. The Healy Administration and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security hosted clinics in November to help immigrants work through the authorization progress and said 2,910 individuals received help. We're about halfway through our broadcast, so we turn to the obituaries. Today, we have one for Alan Craig Hunter. Alan Craig Hunter, 78, of Casco, Maine, formerly a longtime resident of East Dennis, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully on December 10, 2023. He was born on February 14, 1945, in Tallahassee, Florida, to the late Robert Huntry and Viola Paquette Hawley. He grew up in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Allen dedicated his life to his family, career, and church. He had a fulfilling career as a golf course superintendent for many years. In addition, he also owned his own landscaping company, Four Seasons, for 20 years. After moving to Cape Cod in 1990, he worked as a realtor, teacher, and regional golf course manager. Allen's dedication and attention to detail made him highly regarded in his various professions. Outside of work, he was an avid golfer and could often be found on the golf course perfecting his swing. Allen had an adventurous spirit and loved traveling. He also enjoyed skiing, woodworking, and gardening, and was particularly fond of riding his new lawnmower, which brought him great delight. Allen's faith was an important part of his life. He served as a confirmation teacher and a Eucharistic minister for many years. He found solace and community at Our Lady of the Cape, where he worshipped. Allen's family meant the world to him. He is survived by his loving wife of 34 years, Judith Geldner Hunter, seven children, 13 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and his loyal dog, Cooper. He was preceded in death by his only brother, Robin Hunter. Alan's presence will be deeply missed by all who knew him. His legacy as a devoted family man, dedicated friend, and a person of strong faith will continue to inspire those who were fortunate enough to have crossed paths with him. A memorial mass will take place at Our Lady of the Cape, Brewster, Massachusetts, on January 12, 2024, at 11 a.m., Donations in Allen's memory may be made to the Family Food Pantry of Cape Cod at thefamilypantry.com. Condolences and tributes may be shared with Allen's family and friends at www.hallfuneralhome.net. And back to the news for the Cape and Islands. This article is entitled, Mother Takes Dip in the Lake in Remembrance of Her Daughter. And this is reported by Merrily Cassidy for the Cape Cod Times. Janice McRory headed back to the beach after taking a dip Tuesday morning in Waquaket Lake. The Harwich resident took her dip for Liz in honor and remembrance of her daughter, Elizabeth Laforte, who died of a heroin overdose January the 6th, 2011. Tuesday's dip was her 23rd and significant McGrory said, because her daughter was 23 when she died. McGrory made the dip with her sister, Lori Lewis, and friend, Shauna Byrne, and was joined by a small group of supporters on the shoreline. McGrory will be making another dip for Liz at noon on Saturday, the anniversary of her daughter's death. The dip will be at Red River Beach in South Harwich. Others are welcome to join in on the plunge. The third annual Winter Dip is a fundraiser for Recovery Build, an alternative peer group for teens struggling with substance abuse on Cape Cod. Participants can make their dips once, daily, or weekly. Recovery Build, APG, is a place where teens can gather with their peers to build relationships and get the tools they need to help deal with their challenges with the help of licensed counselors and recovery coaches, according to the website. 
This article is entitled, Steamship Workers May Appeal Mandate to Get COVID Vaccine, by Walker Armstrong. A federal district court judge has blocked another effort by 11 employees of Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket Steamship Authority to be exempt from the agency's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. In response, an attorney for the employees said they are, quote, actively looking into filing yet another appeal. We are displeased with the district court's decision, attorney Patrick Dober said in an email. The Steamship Authority operates ferry service from Cape Cod to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard for passengers as well as vehicles, from cars to large freight carrying trucks. The Massachusetts legislature created the Steamship Authority in 1960 to provide for, quote, adequate transportation of persons and necessaries of life for the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, close quote. Passenger ridership was around 2.9 million in 2022, according to an agency's latest annual report. The agency employs about 750 annually, according to the website. The plaintiffs, seeking a preliminary injunction, cited First Amendment and religious reasons for the exemption. U.S. District Court Judge Richard Stearns ruled the plaintiffs failed to demonstrate how the policy violated their constitutional rights. The Steamship Authority's vaccination policy easily satisfies rational base review, meaning that plaintiffs are unlikely to succeed on the merits, Stearns wrote in his December 11th ruling. Quote, limiting COVID-19 infection and transmission is, of course, a legitimate governmental interest, he wrote. Requiring all employees to be vaccinated subject to limited exemptions is rationally related to that interest, he wrote. Jeffrey Collins, attorney for the Steamship Authority, said he could not comment on the decision because the litigation is ongoing. In his ruling, Stern said religious exemption cannot be allowed to compromise the safety and well-being of other employees, customers, and vendors, or else risk undermining trust and confidence in the Steamship Authority. Additionally, Stern says that the authority was upholding proper public health standards in mandating employees get vaccinated against the coronavirus. Granting 11 indefinite religious exemptions creates a substantially higher risk of infection and transmission than granting one time-limited medical exemption, Stern said in a ruling. A spokesperson for the Steamship Authority said they could not comment on the ongoing case. December's ruling is the second time the judge has rejected the the workers' argument upholding the authority's vaccine mandate policy. Originally filed on February 2022 in Barnstable County Superior Court, the case was transferred to the U.S. District Court, where Stearns ruled against the plaintiffs in March 2022, the decision which was later appealed. The workers claimed the mandate would cause, quote, irreparable injury due to loss of fundamental constitutionally guaranteed rights, close quote, according to the civil right to the civil action filed in February 2022. In the complaint, the plaintiffs sought $181,500 in anticipated lost wages due to the mandate. Election news. Trump sues over Maine ballot action. Also asked court to toss election interference case. Reported by John Fritz and David Jackson for USA Today. The election year started off with a bang of the gavel for former president and Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. Trump is fighting on multiple legal fronts to stay on the ballot and out of prison as he campaigns to lead the country again. On the first business day of the new year, Trump challenged a Maine official's decision to remove him from the primary ballot. He also urged a federal appeals court to toss special counsel Jack Smith's January 6, 2021 election interference case. And he got good news from a different federal judge in another January 6 suit, a civil case over the death of a Capitol Police officer. 
Election officials and courts in several states are considering whether Trump's actions on January the 6th disqualify him from the presidency under the 14th Amendment. So far, only two states, Maine and Colorado, have decided that Trump should be removed from the primary ballot. In Colorado, that decision was made by the state's top court, and Trump has appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in Maine, the decision was made by Secretary of State Shenna Bellows. Trump's first line of appeal is to file a lawsuit in state court challenging that decision. <clears throat> and that is what he did on Tuesday. In the filing, Trump called the Secretary of State a, quote, biased decision maker, close quote, and said he experienced, quote, a pervasive lack of due process, close quote. At issue is a Reconstruction-era provision of the 14th Amendment that bars people from serving as president or a member of Congress if they previously took an oath as, quote, an officer of the United States, close quote, and then, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, close quote. Bellows, a Democrat, denied her decision was based on personal political views, telling CNN last week, quote, no secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access, but no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection, close quote. She put the effect of her decision on hold pending resolution in the courts. Maine's presidential primary takes place March the 5th, Super Tuesday. Trump argued in a federal appeals court filing Tuesday that the Constitution and his Senate impeachment acquittal protect him from criminal prosecution for any alleged election interference. The former president has pleaded not guilty to four charges, three for conspiracy and one for obstruction, that he falsely claimed election fraud and tried to overturn legitimate election results. He urged the court to throw out the charges, contending that he is immune because he was president on January the 6th. He says his alleged statements about the administration of a federal election unquestionably fell within the scope of his official duties. Quote, President Trump has immunity from prosecution for his official acts, wrote Trump's lawyer, John Sauer. The Constitution's text, history, and policy support this conclusion, close quote. Sauer argued that the Constitution and founders, including Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, and Justice Joseph Story, each found the president should be immune from criminal prosecutions, prosecution to protect the office from political antagonists. Quote, the likelihood of mushrooming politically motivated prosecutions and future cycles of recrimination are far more menacing and crippling to the presidency than the threat of civil liability, Sauer wrote. <clears throat> Special Counsel Smith has argued that such logic would allow a president to commit crimes such as bribery, murder, and treason without consequence. Similarly, a group of former federal officials who served in Republican administrations argued that if, quote, if Trump's, quote, conduct, qual conduct qualified for absolute immunity, this would improperly unleash a future president to disregard current criminal statutes and deploy the military in efforts to alter the results of a presidential election, close quote, lawyer Richard Bernstein wrote. Sauer argues that when the Senate acquitted Trump in his second impeachment trial, lawmakers blocked a criminal prosecution. The House voted after Trump left office to impeach him for inciting the insurrection at the Capitol. The Senate voted 57 to 43 to convict, falling short of the required two-thirds majority. An acquittal by the Senate strips away the very authority of the government to prosecute, Sauer wrote. Oral arguments are set for January 9th. Smith tried to take Trump's immunity claim straight to the Supreme Court for a speedy and final ruling.
but the high court refused to intervene, sending the dispute over presidential immunity back to the appeals court. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has scheduled the trial to begin March 4th, but it is on hold while the appeals play out. The federal judge on Tuesday tossed most of the counts against Trump and two January 6th rioters in a civil suit over the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who was killed by a stroke one day after he was attacked with bear spray while battling a violent mob. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta said that Sicknick's partner, Sandra Garza, could not make wrongful wrongful death claims against Trump or the two rioters who carried and used the spray because the couple had not officially registered as domestic partners in Washington. Sicknick named Garza in his will as his domestic partner and executive. Mehta, who was appointed to the bench by President Barack Obama, further ruled that Garza could not sue Trump and the two rioters for negligence under federal and Washington anti-rioting laws. The the judge allowed two counts of the lawsuit to proceed. More than 100 have been convicted of crimes related to the Capitol attack. And following... Biden's January 6th point, democracy at stake. President has ramped up his criticism of Trump. And this is reported by Michael Collins for USA Today. Today. President Joe Biden will mark the third anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 mob attack on the U.S. Capitol by evoking a pivotal moment from the Revolutionary War to make the case that democracy is on the line in this year's presidential campaign. Biden's campaign said he will lay out the stakes for the election in a campaign speech Saturday near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where nearly 250 years ago the nation's forefathers transformed a disorganized alliance of colonial militias into a cohesive coalition in the fight for democracy and independence from England. Comparisons between Valley Forge and this year's election are legitimate, the campaign said. Former President Donald Trump, the likely GOP nominee, has made it clear he will dismantle and destroy democracy if he is reelected, the campaign told reporters. Continuing with national news, this article is entitled Biden's January 6th Point, Democracy at Stake. The president has ramped up his criticism of Trump. This is reported by Michael Collins from Washington for the USA Today. President Joe Biden will mark the third anniversary of the January 6, 2021 mob attack on the U.S. Capitol by evoking a pivotal moment from the Revolutionary War to make the case that democracy is on the line in this year's presidential election. Biden's campaign said he will lay out the stakes for the election in a campaign speech Saturday near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where nearly 250 years ago, the nation's forefathers transformed a disorganized alliance of colonial militias into a cohesive coalition in the fight for democracy and independence from England. Comparisons between Valley Forge and this year's elections are legitimate, the campaign said. Former President Donald Trump, the likely GOP nominee, has made it clear that he will dismantle and destroy democracy if he is reelected, the campaign told reporters. <clears throat> Quote, the president will make the case directly that democracy and freedom, two powerful ideas that united the 13 colonies and that and that generations throughout our nation's history have fought and died for a stone's throw from where he will be, remain central to the fight we're in today, said Biden's deputy campaign manager, Quentin Folks. Biden will also take his re-election campaign to Charleston, South Carolina, on Monday, where he will deliver a similar message at the Emanuel AME Church, a storied African-American house of worship. 
The church was the site of a deadly mass shooting on June the 17th, 2015, when the pastor and eight other worshipers gathered for Bible study were killed by a white supremacist shouting racial epithets. Biden has ramped up his criticism of Trump at a series of campaign fundraisers in recent weeks as polls show a tight race. Iowa voters are geared up for the first in the nation presidential caucuses in just two weeks. A new USA Today Suffolk University poll released Monday showed Biden narrowly trailing Trump 39 percent to 37 percent. Biden will use his remarks in Pennsylvania on Saturday to remind voters of Trump's efforts to hang on to power after losing the 2020 election and of the violent insurrection in Washington three years ago. A mob of Trump supporters attacked the Capitol on January the 6th, 2021, in an effort to stop Congress from certifying the election results. With Trump as the likely GOP nominee in this year's election, quote, the choice for voters this year will not simply be between competing philosophies of government, Biden campaign manager Julia Chavez Rodriguez said. The choice for the American people in November 2024 will be about protecting our democracy and every American's fundamental freedoms, close quote. Michael Tyler the Biden campaign's communications director, said Americans must recognize the, quote, gravity and significance of the moment we're all living through, close quote. The leading candidate of a major party in the United States is running for president so that he can systematically dismantle and destroy our democracy, Tyler said. Trump is running a campaign of revenge of retribution, close quote. Vice President Kamala Harris also will hit the road this month to spread the message that fundamental freedoms are in jeopardy. She will speak Saturday in Columbia, South Carolina, at a retreat for women leaders of an African-American church. She will also travel to Wisconsin for an event focused on reproductive freedom on January 22nd, the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion. The Supreme Court reversed that decision in 2022. That's all we have time for today. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. This is Daphne Burt. Stay warm and enjoy the beginning of a new year.